And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Sarah Penske on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome, Sarah. Okay. Hello. Congrat- congratulations. Two books in one year. That's, that's kind of unusual. You've got a short story collection out, like, today or next week or something. And a novel coming out in, I think, September? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the collection comes out March 19th, officially. And the novel is September 10th, uh, so it's going to be a really busy year. Well, congratulations on launching both of your careers, I guess. <laughs> I was thinking one of the things that used to happen with science fiction writers is that as soon as they got enough stories together, they'd put out a collection, and then they'd hope to use that collection to get a contract for a novel. And one of the mistakes they make, I'm going to start off by telling you that you didn't make a mistake, <laughs> is as soon as they get as many stories as they can put together in a collection, they put together a collection which means there's stuff that shouldn't be in it. And you put together like 11 stories and one new one, and you published what, something like 40? 50 now. 50, okay. So yeah. you're really being self-critical in selecting these stories, aren't you? It was really hard. It was really hard. Um, I, I don't have a lot of distance, and I, I like a lot of my stories, but but it was interesting to take that that critical look and figure out not – it didn't come down to what was better necessarily in my head. What what it ended up coming down to was what made a cohesive collection and, yeah. and what what stories worked well in conversation with each other. Well, which is I think what you should do. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, take <laughs> us back. Where did sooner or later everything falls into the sea start? I mean, where did you start being aware you're going to be putting together a collection? How how did that all happen? I think. Um, I think I chatted with with uh, Gavin at a reader con, maybe 2015 or 2016, mm-hmm. and and we started talking about it then. Um, so so I I had them in mind all along. Small beer, uh, I just love everything they put out. So yeah. so uh, I it w- it was. Uh, a mutual, mutual decision that that it, we would work well together, and and it's proven right. So, so it all came together that way. And and was there any Small kind of sorry, sorry? No, go ahead and finish your. Say, and was there any was there any kind of um, you know, collective or coherent principle that you you uh, adopted in looking to put the book together? I can't, I can't say that there is. I, I knew there were some stories that probably didn't belong um, in terms of a feel. I, I had an idea for what I thought a small beer Sarah Pinsker collection would would have in it. Um, and, and I put those stories together and, and I sent them to Gavin and he had he had some that he felt didn't go in there and um so, so we had a conversation about that, and and some of those and ended up coming out, and and others went in. Um, but I think I think there are a couple of things that that tend to I don't uh, people have pointed out themes to me that I don't recognize until later. I'm afraid, <laughs> um, but it's not a thematic thing so much as a feel thing. I kind of wanted the stories that had a a certain feel to them that's sort of a, I, I can't even put a word on it. Um, there, there's a, 
a hope hopefulness in the in the depths of despair that that um isn't in all of them but but uh that might be a thing i can't it's a it's a tonal thing and i'm struggling okay. to put a word to it well, I was, okay I'm one, I'm one of those people who reviewed it and found themes whether they were there or not my job is to find them one way or the other and there's a lot of stuff obviously there's a lot of stuff about music which we have to talk about but there's a lot of stuff about memory too a lot of stories are actually about memory and the one that, 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 and in different ways, different, approaching the theme in different ways. One that comes to mind, for example, is, um, okay, now I'm going to blank on the title, The Generation <laughs> Starship Story, uh, Wind Will Rove. And that was interesting to me because, first of all, you're playing with one of the oldest tropes in science fiction. Uh, and it's one that's being revived a lot lately, it seems. I mean, there was uh, River Solomon's novel was a Generation mm-hmm. Starship novel. But what you focused on, was the middle generations, and and people and, and and you've got a historian who's also a singer, and it's like I said, this is the only story you'll ever read about the role of a fiddler on a generation starship, which is cool. But you've got a bunch of kids who don't think there's any point in learning anything about the past because they'll never have that past, and that's the way. If you've ever taught, that's the way kids are. <laughs> They don't need a generation starship to feel that way. Mm-hmm. So the whole business about the importance of memory being part of your identity seemed to me to be central to that story. I would definitely agree it's central to that story. Um, and I I didn't notice until you pointed it out that there was a, a thread of, of memory throughout other stories. Um, the, the thing that I usually kind of wind up getting tagged for is is putting people into a position where they're they're holding on to something for good or for bad and it might be something you should hold on to and it might be time to let mm-hmm. it go um uh but it's usually it's usually those people who are trying to figure out their place in a changing world and i think that would be something that i dip back into and, and maybe that comes across as memory um well, but, but, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a story called Remembery Day, which is about the technological <laughs> suppression of memory. It's true. It's, I mean, once you say it, I'll say, yes, memory is a theme. Of course, <laughs> I intended that. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having themes. They're not obsessions. It's not as though, you know, it's not as though every story in the book is about cats or something. <laughs> um, but there, I'm, I'm just looking down one story after another, and... Uh, the the past shows up the past and coping with change, and yeah. the, the nebula st- story, uh, the, and congratulations a little bit belatedly for a nebula for Our Lady of the Open Road. That's also kind of a kernel of um, a song for a new day, isn't it? Yes, yeah. The um, the the story appeared in my first draft, and then I ended up cutting it long before the last draft. But it but it is the thing that. Uh, inspired the the novel. And one of the things it deals with uh, is, ex- this is the other thing I thought was interesting, because writers write about writerly anxieties a lot. And you seem to write a lot about musicians' anxieties. And the whole business of being replaced by technology is just central to both that story and that novel. The Yeah, I I, um, I definitely feel like I found a niche in writing stories about about technology the the um the intersection of technology and music mm-hmm. uh for good and for bad uh 
I, I, I mean, the, the writer, writers in technology has been done right. uh, by a lot of other people. Um, and I'm, I'm not the only one telling music stories, but I feel like I'm in a, a good place to tell them. Yeah. And, and uh, I love telling them. So. Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it, was it Sarah the musician or Sarah the writer? That is a complicated question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I was I loved music from a very young age, um, and I also wrote stories from a very. I mean, I I was writing stories when I was five, and I was playing terrible music on a recorder. So, mm-hmm. um, they they kind of developed in tandem, and and I wrote fiction for a long time and played music for a long time and then left the fiction behind just after college. I, that was when I decided I was going to make music. I, I, uh, I was at a dinner with, with the president of my college, my senior year, and she was going around the table and asking every, it was like an honors dinner. And she was asking everybody, mm-hmm. oh, what are you going to uh, do after you graduate? And everyone's saying, Oh, you know, I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to go into the Peace Corps. I'm going to uh, intern on, uh, on Capitol Hill. And she got to me and I said, um, I'm going to hit the road. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I, um, I had just decided I was going to play music and I wasn't ready for grad school. And I never did go back to grad school, but I wanted to play music. And I, I stopped writing fiction for, for several years at that point. But I think they both serve sort of the same purpose in my, they, they both fit a, a storytelling uh, urge for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think, I think they're just different venues for telling stories and, and you get to tell different kinds of stories and different textures. Um, and for a long time, I was feeling the need to tell stories in the most compact space possible. And and then I wanted to expand again, and I started writing stories again. And mm-hmm. it's become harder to write to write songs right now because of that. Um, but they do sort of both ebb and flow. There's a balance that that it may be possible to maintain, but I'm not sure I can balance it. So I'm sort of heavy on one end of the seesaw than the other. Well, one of the things that you do very well, and it's, I think, more dramatic in the novel, is describe what it feels like to perform music and and that's a rare it's a rare it's a rare talent to be able to describe that and i was trying to think how many science fiction or fantasy or horror stories have even attempted to do that there's there's a lot of stuff about music here and there but i was trying to think of earlier examples of describing what a performance feels like to the performer actually there's a good example of that in one of nalo hopkinson's novels i think it's sister mine and there's some here and there. There's uh, Bradley Denton has some, but music is not a very common theme in, in in science fiction and fantasy. It seems I thought it would be more common, but when I started thinking back on what it feels like to perform, that's that's a rare kind of thing, and it's a, seems to me to be a difficult thing to write. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of fun doing that. It's it is a a, a kind of funny tightrope to walk because you're trying to describe something that can be. It's the whole dancing about architecture thing. Yeah. But I find that if I that, that the best way to write about music is to write about how it feels either to the performer or to the listener. 
um, rather than describing the music. Right. Describe the the actual physicality of it, how it how it hits you, how it feels to you, the you know your fingers on the strings, the um, the you know the wave that's hitting you. Th- those are all things uh, tangible things that that can transfer better. And I find that if I if I don't describe the music as much, but describe the feel of it, it leaves people a blank space to mm-hmm. uh, to impose whatever they want to hear. So I also am not interrupting them with with a strong uh, uh, by dictating what it is that they're supposed to be hearing. Instead, I'm telling what what they feel, and they put their own favorite music into that or least favorite, whatever it is that, it, that they need in that particular moment. That's pretty cool. I'm curious, I mean, <clears throat> how much of your time these days is split between writing and music? I mean, it, it, it sounds as though for a handful of years you were primarily what, out on the road, and then you're now primarily writing. Is that kind of how it breaks down now? Yeah, yeah, like I said, I'm really heavy on one side of the teeter-totter. <laughs> um, I... I have my uh, so I have three albums that that were released over ten years, and now it has been uh, approximately the length of my fiction career since the last album, and a, and a couple years on top of that since the last one. And in fact, I have that fourth album completely in the can. It's done. It's ready. It's mixed. It's mastered. It's the only thing left is the artwork. Um, which I've been sitting on for a different reason, but I can't get it out, and I would love to. It's it's just I don't have the time and energy to just look at it and say you're going out the door, you know. And because in my mind that also leads to then I should be touring that, and, and I'll, but I want the music out there. I just don't want this. I, and I would be happy to be playing, but I also have contracts and stories that want to be told right now. Um, so so it is a, a not a good balance right now. This time, well, I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was going. I was going back to the other thing. Was uh, when you're talking about performing again, it occurred to me that this is something that the performer gets to. I mean, the whole argument about what's well, in the story and the novel. The whole argument about live performance during stage holo, which is this. Actually, the name. The name is a very good name because the minute you say stage holo, every science fiction writer reader knows exactly what you mean. But the advantage of, of the live performance is that you're, you're interacting with the audience, you're playing off the audience, and you describe that very well. You describe that as something that can't happen when you're simply in a studio re- recording a hologram. But you can't do that when you're writing fiction, can you? You can't see how the audience is responding. You can't really adjust your uh, moves to what they are responding to. That's absolutely true. Uh, it, there, there's no immediate response. Uh, I did have a critique group for a while that was a read out loud critique group mm-hmm. and that fed some of that. Um, but uh, no, no, you have to wait and then you can do readings and readings. You get an instant response, but by then the story is the done. Yeah. done. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, it's, it's a much slower burn. You have to get used to that. And I do like the rush of performing and getting that feedback uh, a whole lot. So, so I, I miss that. Um, I am doing, uh, there's a couple of little mini tours that I'm doing for the collection um, Uh in the next few weeks, including a a little swing through North Carolina at the end of the month. 
Um, and and it includes of the three locations, which I didn't pick. Like Gavin, uh, Gavin arranged things, but it turns out one one of them is a bookstore that I had uh, played at on a on a folk tour uh, like seventeen years ago, huh. and. Um, and then the other is um, a bookstore in in um, like the the Chapel Hill Durham area, uh, which I've never played done anything for the bookstore. But the bookstore de- decided spontaneously, hey, we have this idea. Why don't we have Sarah come and instead of reading at our bookstore, let's have her play at this uh, this uh, crusty old club in in this area. She'll love it. It's called the Cave. And actually, my band played there ten ten or twelve years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I'm going down there and I'm doing um, a mix. It's going to be a reading and and show, and I, I'm trying to figure out how that balance is going to work too. But, but I'm kind of curious about mixing the two. Well, actually, that was something I was going to ask you. I mean, are these things, and plainly they are, feeding into one another like that? Are you finding yourself blending, you know? storytelling and music together more overtly rather than than having the, the storytelling embedded in song I, I think I've always done both um, they, they've always they've always been intertwined um, whether I can pull and, and I would even say that in a performance setting that's true as well because because uh, at least on solo stages not so much with the band but on solo stages I've always you know talked between songs, taken my time, told stories. So, so I, I think they, they do work well with each other. Um, well, I, I didn't see it, but Jonathan did. He's paid lots of money to see Springsteen on Broadway, which I gather is half storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and anecdotes yeah, and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, we had a long talk about that at World <laughs> Fantasy. Yeah. So. That was worth it. That was well worth the travel well, I mean, flight to America. Here, here's for, a question, but. though, because you have a, you have a following in music, you have a following in fiction. Do they overlap? Do your music fans read your stories? Do your fiction they, fans? They seem to. I'll let you. I'll let you know uh, after you know the book has <laughs> been around for a little while. But uh, when I first started uh, selling stories, I had a couple of these funny experiences where um, I, I got emails through my website where someone said, Sarah, you know, I used to, do you remember us? We used to come to your shows and like whenever you played at this place in Virginia and we're in Michigan now, but our new issue of fantasy and science fiction came and, and I had to look up whether it was the same Sarah Pinsker, but I figured once I started reading the story that it was you. So, so I've had a few of those happen uh-huh. and there are a lot of librarian. I, I don't know. I feel like there's a folk and librarian mix and there, there is an overlap with folk and science fiction that I hadn't, I've noticed in New England. I haven't noticed it much in other places, but I know, like, I know a bunch of the people who go to ReaderCon also go to um, uh, the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival, and we were probably there in the same years, and like we, we've had that conversation before. So I think there is a an, an overlap, and I think a lot of folk fans are readers. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there the Delints, for example, who have been made a duo career out of at least he has, but they 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 dominated an Ikpo one year with their songs, which were just really terrific, and clearly some of them are connected to his fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's wonderful. They're they're both wonderful. Uh, we at uh, World Fantasy this year, I, I counted afterward, and I I played 
13 hours of music over the course of the oh, weekend, yeah. um, most of which was with the two of them and, and uh, Nina Kirky Hoffman and uh, Karen right. Osborne on fiddle. Um, and then other people came and went, uh, um, Ellen Kushner and Delia Sherman and a whole bunch of people also also joined us. Um, but but it was 13 hours and it sort of culminated at one point, I think I think at like 3 a.m. on Saturday night, I was... I was asleep and still playing, and a bunch of uh, a bunch of drunk clarion students wandered in, and they said, "Well, we'll sit and and um, hang out if you can play this." And it turned into like a sort of combination of of a of a dare me to play thing and uh-huh. karaoke for them. I was basically their karaoke band, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, that's a very long answer too. I, I think there's a, a strong overlap. Which will probably be stronger after. Well, the thing about uh, song, a song for a new day, and uh, I, I should mention this: your publicist was very nice to send this bound galley, which, unlike anything I've ever seen, has no indication at all of who the publisher is. I know it's a Penguin no Random House imprint, but who? Uh, it's no Berkeley. Oh, is okay, it Del Rey? Under, I'm sorry. Is it Del Rey itself, or is it uh, uh, no, Berkeley? It's not Del Rey. It's okay. it's, it's Berkeley. Um, it's Berkeley. It was originally Ace, and then they moved it to Berkeley. Okay, but and, and I, I looked on the website, and it looked to me like they're classifying this as literary fiction. I noticed that too. <laughs> and that's kind of interesting. Well, it is a road novel. I mean, it's a it, it follows a lot of the classic moves of, of a road novel. And but that seems to me to suggest that they uh, see a mainstream audience for this. And we've mentioned Small Beer, which has a very good track record of crossing over, I guess, with mainstream collections. Mm. And, and so so uh, this is probably, I guess, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, as long as people can find it on the on the shelves, I think it's a good thing. Um, I mean, if it if they call it literary and it doesn't show up in the place that people go looking because they're used to thinking of me as science fiction, uh-huh. then then it you know it becomes a small problem but but it'll be there somewhere and um, but i mean it, 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 it actually strikes it. me it's, it, it won't be a problem because the core branding for small beer press you're doing sooner or later if everything falls into the sea mm. is that they are a literary genre mainstream cool stuff crossover kind of uh-huh. publisher and that's where you find i mean one of one of the old hoary clichés in maybe publishing certainly, but science fiction particularly, is that short story collections don't sell. But I know that small beer press collections do sell and do sell in very significant numbers. So mm-hmm. they have found that niche. And it strikes me that actually the, the new novel, Song for a New Day, actually does fit into exactly that niche, almost exactly the same niche, really well. So yeah, I, think, I don't think yeah. that's going to be a problem. And the peop- obviously the people in the field know where to look. I guess the question I'd ask, because Song for New Day coming out in September, basically for readers who are, who've yet to see even a blurb for the back of the book, it's a split narrative basically between someone working in A&R and a performer dealing with major change in the world caused by an inability to perform live because of circumstances. So where, where does Sarah sit the most in this equation? <laughs> you know, I mean, it feels like to some degree there's an aspect of Song for You Day that is, it's, it's an elegy for the, the death of the road, you know, uh, that the music business is getting harder and harder to, to make a livelihood and, and that kind of thing. Is is there an element of that or am I projecting too much? There, There's absolutely an element of that. 
Um, and uh, the the other thing is the A and R person in that in the in that uh, in of those two you just mentioned is uh, young and grew up in this sort of new world order. Um, so so she. Uh, so she's coming at it as this is how it's always been. And the other character is someone who says, but I remember how it was. So there's your memory thing again. Um, right. <laughs> but but uh, absolutely, that that is that is probably something that was strongly on my mind. Uh, um, I mean, and and I'm aware that there's there's good for every bad thing, you know, uh, uh, things things come. It is way easier to be an indie musician um, it's easier to get your music heard than you know when you had to go through a major label, but also there's a whole lot of people competing for that same space, and whether whether you can carve out a, a large enough portion for yourself to live on, you know, I, I know some people who still do it, and and I know a lot of people who do it and have day jobs, but I know a lot of writers who do it and have day jobs too, and and I fall on the I strongly fall on the side of it's okay to have a day job. So, well, I was going to say it doesn't feel like hearing you talk about your career that you've been following the money. No, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, if someone said to me, you know, "I'd like to make a lot of money. I'd like to be a science fiction writer," I, I don't know that that would gel in my mind. And the same with I'd like to be a folk musician. Believe me. <laughs> um, While well, you're. So you're saying in the terms of the novel, and which people will understand what I'm referring to in a couple of months, you're more loose than Rosemary. That is probably true. That is probably but true. But neither one is an unsympathetic character, and that's what's interesting about making this into a, kind of a mainstream appeal. Because, first of all, there is the classic road novel structure. There is the business about music. There, and, and loose, I'm not giving any – I hope it's not a spoiler. I hope mentioning point of view isn't a spoiler. But yeah. Luce, who's the musician, gets a first-person point of view, and Rosemary, who is the younger person, doesn't. So that kind of objectifies one and subjectifies the other. But the other thing which I think is appealing in both the stories and the novel to a broader audience is that, for the most part, you don't require a lot of science fictional heavy lifting. And by that I mean the, there's a dystopian background for both the story and the novel uh, and it's and some of the things like this giant mega corporation that runs retail called Super Wally. It's not hard to figure out who that is, uh, or what they do to small towns. And Stage Hole, like I said earlier, is kind of self-explanatory. So there are a lot of bad things happening in this world, but they're bad things we can pretty much recognize already. So it's 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 a kind of dystopia that makes no more demands than a Station Eleven dystopia, let's say. Yeah, and I, I think that's the the comparison that that uh, Berkeley is probably going for, um, but I, yeah, I, I definitely um, sort of forgot what I was about to say there. So hang on one second. Um, uh, yeah, that it doesn't make demands. I, I uh, you know, I love a, a good hard science fiction story where where um, you sort of need to know the the language and need to know how to read it so that you know mm -hmm. which things to pay attention to and which are backdrop. Um, but I also like the challenge of trying to reach those people who uh, maybe don't consider themselves science fiction readers, but aren't 
closed to reading something with science fictional elements. Um, so, so uh, I, I try to contextualize everything and, and the things that are a farther reach. I try to, I try to make sure that they have a way of getting to, but you're right. It is, it is a very near future setting where you don't have to make a whole lot of leaps to get there. Have you ever had an experience of finding a reader who liked your stories and didn't really know they were science fiction? I've had a lot of people say, I don't read science fiction, but I loved that. Okay, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. My, my litmus test for this, because it happened to him all the time, was Daniel Keyes of Flowers for Algernon. And he said, I mean, it's, it's just taught like in every high school in the world by now, I suppose. And he said he was always amazed at how many people loved the novel and argued with him that it wasn't a science fiction novel. Right. Was, yeah, so, yeah. So I mean, that prejudice is still out there. But I... Um, I, I, I think that a lot of people are are more open to that than they used to be, and you sort of just have to give them the keys to the, you know, make sure that they they have the tools to to understand it. Um, well, can I ask you about one of my favorite stories in your collection, which is in this area, um, because it's a story which I think is completely readable. You only have to accept one thing in it, and this is. And then there were none, or N minus one, which, I mean, you have to accept the notion of alternate universes somehow communicating with each other. Once you've got that, it's an Agatha Christie locked room mystery in which all, the, we should mention, the victim and all the suspects are Sarah Pinsker. Yeah. <laughs> and yet it doesn't seem like a self-indulgent story at all. How did that come about? Um, just how did the story come about? Yeah. Uh, I was, I was on a writing retreat and we were, so it was, it was in the spring and someone had brought a whole bunch of, um, marshmallow peeps. It must've been just after Easter. Um, Mm -hmm. and they were, they were sitting there on a plate the whole first day kind of drying out. And then on the second day they were still sitting there on the plate and there were 10 of them there and, uh, we somehow ended up drinking a lot of whiskey that night and uh, recreating uh, all of the deaths in, and then there were none mm-hmm. um, with the peeps. So, <laughs> so uh, one of the we burned one of them and and accidentally cracked a, a plate in the process. So it, it turns out they they do burn very hot. Just so you know, ah. um, and and we did these little tableaus. So so one of them ate. Uh, had OD'd on pills, and one of them uh, was was squashed by by law books. I, I don't quite <laughs> remember uh, what all all of them are right off the top of my head, but but all of the peeps went through it, and um and I also needed to come up with a story for uh for Sycamore Hill, which was looming a month or two ahead, and and I was thinking I need a story, I need a story, and I woke up with the title with the with the N minus, minus one. sign, yeah, the, that it was, and then there were none, but it was, and then there were N minus one, um, and then the obvious answer to that is what? What would, and then there, there were N minus one be? Well, it's N minus one of what? It's victims, uh-huh. um, and and so I wrote, I wrote the story with another character's name. I, the the maybe the first couple of thousand words up until the death, maybe 
uh, I can't quite remember where that first draft stopped, but it was almost right. And it was, something mm -hmm. was not there. It was, um, it was distanced. And, and I had this horrible dawning. I kept sitting on it and thinking, what is wrong with this? I know I can do this. Um, it's going to be, you know, like, it's clever. It's uh, like, uh, I can make this work. And then I, just, uh, it was this like horrible, horrible dawning realization of what <laughs> I had to do. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they say you have to bleed for a story. And I was like, I'm going to bleed for this one. Um, so, so, uh, some of it is, you know, there's there's elements of truth and there are elements, uh, there are things that might seem like they're true but aren't. Um, and well, that's the question readers are going to have. You realize, of course, everybody's going to be, just just for, to give a little bit of background. This is a convention of people from alternate universes who are all versions of you, and every reader is going to ask, how many of those versions are Sarah Pinsker's that might have been, and how many of them are made up out of whole cloth? Right. That is the question, and I'm not. And you don't have that. to answer that. <laughs> no, no, I am there. I am. I, I, I have a, a, the. I have a tiny walk-on part, um, and I won't say what it is, but um, but I am one of them. But but uh, not any of the main ones. Run a contest. Whoever <laughs> finds the real Sarah Pinsker in the story gets. I don't know. A <laughs> I, I like that idea actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll uh, give you a shout out if I do okay. that. <laughs> when you read your short fiction, there's a blend between science fiction and fantasy. Which is your first love? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I am. I don't have an answer to that. I loved them both as a kid. Um, the first things that I remember strongly are uh, A Wizard of Earthsea and. And this one Robert Sheckley story from like microcosmic tales or one of one of the Asimov uh, anthologies uh, where, where there was a guy with uh, there there was a guy who who went to scratch between his fingers one night and a little voice said don't do that there's a um, our whole civil civilization has been built here between your fingers. <laughs> and um, if you can just wait it out, like, you know, a few more hours will survive millennia. And and so he put a Band-Aid over it and waited until morning to scratch it. Um, but so, I, and yeah, I, I don't know if that was an answer either. But but I guess I, I was exposed to both early and I'm not good at choosing favorites. So I'll, I'll say maybe a little on the science fiction side but not not strongly so it's more of a a question of what i didn't like and i didn't tend to go for giant um giant fantasy uh series i'm not a huge yeah. series fan um I, I tend to like the standalones better and that was maybe more suited to science fiction there's some there's some good fantasy standalones but not that that was harder to find. Fair enough. There are, a couple um, of there are a couple of stories in the collection. I wondered if this was an influence also. Um, that that read like folk ballads or folk legends. There's the the, the, the one that. Um, oh, let me. The, well, first of all, there's a title story. Sooner or later, everything falls into the sea, and you've got this basically hermit in a remote village, and there's a remote village that occurs in no lonely seafarer. No Lonely Seafarer almost reads like a folk song. 
Thank you. <laughs> so I just wondered if, if, if some of these some of these old ballads were like a part of the influence on your fantasy as well. Oh, I mean, I love old ballads. So so and I did listen to a lot of them for that story. Um, so so that that question tends to if I say yes, it sort of shuts it off. But 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 yeah, I mean, I. I had the, those textures are, are in there. Well, as long as we're talking about influences in fiction, who are your influences in music? <laughs> um, I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Okay. Uh, uh, Phil Oaks. Um, Dylan, even though he's a jerk. Um, uh, Patty Griffin, Joni Mitchell, uh, the Kinks, it's it's a a whole bunch, of, and I love like sixties uh, style soul, um, Otis Redding and oh. um, Mary Clayton, and uh, she's more seventies, but um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of all over the map. I love everything. Um, but a lot of those people you mentioned when you were talking about Phil Oaks or Johnny Mitchell and so forth and so on wrote narrative songs. They wrote songs. It's absolutely true, and and specific. I write I write a lot of narrative songs <laughs> as well. Um, not all of them, but but uh, uh, unlike unlike Dylan and Oaks, I, I do know how to write a bridge, but <laughs> um, I, I I don't I don't tend to do the like twenty. 20 verses with no with no uh nothing to break it up but but uh, i mean a lot of my a lot of my music has a has a narrative element and has science fictional elements for that matter science fiction or fantasy um i it, it isn't i didn't grow up with the filk uh connection at all i didn't know about filk until i started writing um of, you know, until a few years ago, uh, when when my story started selling, and I started going to conventions for the first time, um, but but music, yeah, um, yeah, I just don't know that that whole side of things. I I'm, I don't know the filk traditions, but just in a quick defense of Phil Oaks, who you're right, didn't write bridges, but uh, because I'm defending my own generation here, he died young. Uh, <laughs> young people have bridges, Gary. Well, okay, young people have bridges, but he was not about writing bridges. He was about hammering home one point over and over and over again, which he did very, very well. So he wasn't about structuring songs. He was about slapping you in the face with them. I, I think his, his protest song, certainly. But, well, but uh, I mean, he, he also wrote really eloquently about change and, and aging and um, – uh, I'm thinking of uh, um, uh, changes and uh, uh, I don't know, I'm playing songs in my head. Yeah, but, okay, that's right. Yeah, it's okay. Um, yeah, I, I think I think his his stuff that wasn't uh, protest music was also was super eloquent. It's fun mm. to play the the songs that are sort of out of context now, but but the changes is as good a song as any you'll you'll ever hear that's a beautiful song just out of curiosity and then we're getting a little bit off subject here but given the way given the kind of proto dystopia we're living in which is again very clear i think in the novel i mean nothing in the novel isn't already there in in some kind of incipient form which is why i think it's got a mainstream appeal 
you think there's going to be a revival of protest music? I keep, I mean, there's still, there's still protest music and there's protest music mm -hmm. taking different forms. I think, I think there's a lot of rap music that's protest music. Yeah, that's true. Music. Um, and, and there's still some great folk musicians playing, but um, whether or not they're being heard by a larger audience is the different question. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, there's more of a splintering. So it's harder to, um, it's harder to, to um, unite people around one song, even if it's a really good, you know, even if it's a really good protest song. But if you go to a protest, uh, you know, like, uh, in within the last couple of years, what I've been hearing is, you know, instead of um, instead of the chants, you know, or the the songs from the '60s, and I did go to one where there was someone uh, trying to lead. Uh, if I had a hammer, and it was not the audience for it was the audience for move, get out of the way. Yeah, um, you know, so so it's 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 just a matter of of I think a splintering. So, so yes, there's definitely a space for protest music. I certainly wrote a novel to say so. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you think that splintering is a characteristic of our time? I mean, I, I feel like I see that when I look at just the readership for, for science fiction, that splintering seems to be the thing, that cohering back into your small tribal group is the thing of the time. I do. I do. Um, I think part of it is... is people like what they like but it becomes a feedback loop where if you're only hearing the things you like then you don't get to develop new things you like um so so certainly it's possible to only read uh space opera or only read you know very specific subgenres um and and it's equally possible to to curate your uh, Spotify or your Pandora or whatever, so that you never hear anything but but what you already want to hear. Well, one, just one quick illustration of that is um, when I was teaching one of the, um, and I was teaching mostly black students. I just retired a couple of years ago. Middle aged uh, adults, not not kids, but there were people who grew up with with things like Cop Killer and NWA and, and Guns N' Roses and that sort of thing. And I'd play them a Buffy St. Marie song, one of the in your face. And they were shocked. They were stunned that this was so much angrier than what they thought they'd been listening to. Mm -hmm. That um, and 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 she, for example, is somebody who had a broad audience at one time. I don't know if she would today. Yeah, I. I, uh, I mean, she's still out there playing, and uh, she's still playing. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she is. That's um, the gig economy, Gary. Everyone's still playing. Oh yeah, yeah, let's talk about the gig economy for a minute. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a hard thing to give up, too. I mean, uh, Joan, I, we're, we're talking a lot about folk here. Sorry, um, sorry. No. But, but Joan Baez is uh, just finishing a farewell tour or just finished. Yeah. I can't remember whether it's it's still ongoing. But, but you know, it's the same question that you ask writers. You know, are you, like, do writers get to retire? Do musicians get to retire? Um, or do you always want to get one more story out of them? Um <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if there's an answer. We expect we expect writers to work right up until the end. Um, and and musicians, I, I think in some ways it's crueler because you 
expect them to keep going, but you also uh, critique them on how they've aged in a way that writers don't get critiqued. That's um, absolutely true, I think. And, and the other thing I think that writers probably don't get that musicians do is if you go to see a Joan Baez farewell tour or a Leonard Cohen farewell tour, the audience doesn't want to hear the new material. <laughs> they want to hear what they can sing along with. And at least as a writer, you don't have people saying, give us something we can sing along with. That's true. On the, on the other hand, they may want another foundation story. But let, let me ask oh. you a, a, a question that actually relates to your work. It's mm -hmm. a chicken and the egg kind of a question. Looking at the table of contents of sooner or later everything falls into the sea, looking at your bibliography, I'm curious. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the title or the story that comes first for you? It's usually the story, but sometimes there's a title so enticing that I have to build a, a, a story around it. Um, I love titling things. Mm -hmm. and You're there, Thank you. There's a, there's a couple that I wish I had used something else, but, but, uh, but I'm not even going to say what they are. I, I, I'll let other people decide that. But, but um, yeah, I love, I love titling stories and, um, sometimes you can build a whole story just off of a title, but like, and then the well, one of the things that's interesting, I was, I was just looking down the table of contents as you were talking and there, there are some very evocative poetic titles. The most bizarre story in the entire collection, uh, is, is the lead story, which has the simplest title, a search of a stretch of highway, two lanes wide, um, which Again, thinking about old road stories reminded me of an old movie that nobody's seen, a Monty Hellman movie called Tulane Blacktop. No, never heard of it. Okay, well, it was the only movie that James Taylor starred in as an actor. Huh. So it's worth – no, it's not quite worth looking up, <laughs> but it's worth thinking about looking up. But this is a completely surreal story about an, a, a prosthesis, which actually may be a highway. Um, and – there's nothing in the title that suggests anything other than this hyper-realist image of a highway. I don't know where I'm going with that. No, okay. Well, let's go somewhere else then. How important is workshopping to you? You've mentioned that you've been to uh, a number of workshops or, or have workshopped stories or whatever else. Um, I've been to Sycamore Hill several times and uh, – and I workshop I workshopped in college, but but nothing in between. I didn't do Clarion. I wanted to. Um, I, I wrote away to them when I was fourteen for the uh, instructions and for how to how to um, apply. And I wrote away, I think, every year. And and then I, I, I you know, if I was fourteen. Mm, I'm glad sure. I didn't do it then. Um, whether or not they would have had me, mm. but but um, and then in college it just didn't seem practical. I had a job. I couldn't. Have, afford to go out there and it, it just kept life kept getting in the way so um, i always wanted to go to clarion and i never did and i never went to any of the others so my my first real uh real experience workshopping um in in a traditional workshop setting was sycamore hill um by then i had already found this a couple of critique groups uh -huh. um so so you know a little more casual and less intense Never um, took a creative writing course in college. Oh no, I took I took all the creative writing classes in in college. Uh, Madison Smart Bell was the oh. uh, um, the instructor, and and he he was he was a good workshop leader. So I did those, um, and can't remember a thing about them. But but you know I was writing stories, uh, 
real stories I've stories. heard from so many people who went to traditional. I, I don't know anything about Madden's, Madison Smart Bell other than his fiction, but so many people tried to write any kind of fantasy or science fiction or even slipstream and got slapped down for it. I, you know, I, I had an instinct that I wasn't supposed to be writing uh, non-realist stories for him. Mm. I don't know if that's actually true. I think there was someone who was trying to write fantasy in that class who who he kept um, stepping on. And I'm pretty sure. And I know that uh, one of my best friends was in that class with me and she kept writing horse stories um, and he kept stepping on those, too. <laughs> um, and uh, one of and, and then my friend uh, John McManus, who's had several collections out um, and his stuff is all surreal. It, it's. It's lit fic, but it's, it's surreal. His first novel was narrated by an invisible friend, like mm-hmm. the invisible friend of the of the protagonist. So um, I, I feel like he was he was open to it, but I, maybe maybe I don't know. I didn't try. I wrote I wrote. Well, what, if you went to Sycamore Hill, uh, which has got a pretty good track record. Also, do you do you feel that you had mentors come out of that relationship? I did. I, I I don't know about men, mentors. Well, I mean, I felt like I mean, the strange thing was I went into that first year going, oh, my oh, my gosh, how am I supposed to write a story to critique to be critiqued by these people? And also, how am I supposed to critique these people? These are the people. And it was I, I'm not even going to name names, but it was literally like the list of my favorite writers. And they were all coming <laughs> that week. Um in a whole lot of people you've had on this show. Uh, and I uh, and I said, well, I'm going to have to write the best story I've ever written. And I wrote Wind Will Rove, which I was very, mm-hmm. you know, I, it was it was a draft and it did need work, but I, I wasn't displeased with it. Um, and I went in, you know, intimidated and came out thinking of them as as peers, like peers ahead of me in the game. But it didn't feel mm-hmm. like a mentorship thing. Um because we were we were all equals around the table, and I I you know I felt like I had something to say, so I didn't feel like I was being treated as a junior. Um, cool. And I've never felt like that. It's, it's, you know, I since since my first story, I've I've certainly you know should be treated. There were points where I should have been, but but I think I came in at a point where I was ready to accept where I where I was. What. Given given your ex, talking about your your friend, for example, who's published mo- mostly mainstream stories with fantasy elements, and the fact that you're being published by Small Beer, which I don't think they would object to my saying that the er title of Small Beer Press was really Kelly Link's Stranger mm-hmm. Things Happen, and and Kelly is one of these writers who has managed to you know have a foot in both literary and fantasy camps without ever giving up the fantasy and science fiction and without giving. And there, there are more and more writers like that. Brian Evanson is writing, you know, uh, science fiction novels for Tor and writing his literary novels and so forth. Is that kind of the position that you see yourself landing in eventually? Um, that, that would involve more forethought than I give things. Um, I, I, I certainly, you know, I love a lot of the work that falls into that space and, mm-hmm. and I would be happy if that's how it turns out. But I also absolutely love the community that I've found in science fiction and fantasy. And I've seen some people, not Kelly link, um, you know, sort of 
turn their backs and pretend they weren't part of that. Maybe yeah. not officially, but but you know the story stopped flowing in that direction. You know whether you know maybe because they can sell to the New Yorker or whatever. But but um, I I, I just love the community and I love the magazines and and uh, so if it involves also saying you know turning my back on that then then no but but if i don't have to do that and i can have both then i'll take both i I think there are more and more people who feel they can have both i think the idea there was a writer named um michael shara s-h-a-a-r-a um he i'm I'm, i got that right jonathan it's it's him and not his father not his killing angels the no the killing angels he was a science fiction writer for the magazines until the Killing Angels came really? out, really, he was just in a run-of-the-mill, sold stories to amazing and fantastic and fantasy and science fiction. And once he got a Pulitzer Prize for that novel, which is a very good novel, he just didn't look back. He was he was a mainstream writer. That was in the fifties. I don't think that sort of thing really happens that much anymore. I mean, I don't think Doris Lessing, for heaven's sake, never turned her back on science fiction. Well, I don't think it's the same. She admitted. Well, she didn't need to. That's true. But when she, she actually told me once that she was irritated when her Canopus things came out, that everybody was reviewing it as not science fiction. It's vision, visionary literature. It's allegory. And she said, "I was trying to write science fiction." She she, she was a Greg Bear fan, for heaven's sake. So I, I think the idea that science fiction cooties are destroying careers of mainstream writers. It's still there among some literati, but it's not there, I think, so much among the writers that matter, of whom I would count Kelly Link and yourself and Brian Evanson and a whole list of people that I'm going to get in trouble for not having (laughs) right now. Okay. Let me ask this because it would actually be a question which would be cool. cool. Okay. It always seems to me that it's the nature of creative work that you are working on the thing after – what everybody's currently aware of. The next six months of your creative life, to some degree, seem to be sooner or later everything comes into falls into the sea, comes out late next week, I think, from Small Beer Press. Then, uh, song for a new uh, dying world. I've gone blank on the title. You're, that's so, terrible. You're good. Song for a new day. Song for a new day is coming out in uh, I think September from uh, Berkeley. You have an, an album which at some point will be released into the <laughs> world, right? That there will be touring and promotion, but but still, where do you see yourself going next in amongst all of the 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 the, the promotion and all that kind of work? What what what's next? Do you that you, do you feel is going to draw you? So uh, there's a second novel in my contract with Berkeley, uh, which I'm working on now and which I'm very happy with. Uh, but but I keep getting interrupted by all these uh, the essays and the the blog posts and everything that that people ask you to do for for a book as it turns out. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to find a balance where I actually get to write some fiction. And then I have uh, four or five stories in the hopper that I started, and uh, you know I didn't abandon them. They're, I just didn't have time to finish them yet. And um, I know I've promised stories to to Sheila and to. Um, a couple of other uh, magazines that I've been saying for ages, yes, I'll send you something else. And, um, and I just sort of want to do a round through all my favorite magazines and (laughs) um, get those stories finished. Um, So, so that would be what I would say in the next six months. I need to, 
I'm, I'm working on this novel. I have an idea for the next novel also, which I've had some great fun researching, but now I have to put that aside for a little while. Um, and then, and then the stories that want to get written. And you, you feel you're drawn into the same kind of space as, as you know, the new novel or, or, or somewhere else. We're, we're not going to see sort of the, the, the elf stones of Shannara six. <laughs> no, no, there's no, it's not a sequel. Um, the I think the the thing that I can say, assuming that everything goes well and everything, is, is that it's a, also a n- near future story, a different near future. Um, mm. Not I would I would say not a dystopia, but I kind of didn't call this one dystopia either. <laughs> um, uh, so it's that might dystopian. Just, might, it's kind of dystopian well, in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dis- maybe dystopia-ish. Can I that? <laughs> well, pretty much when you think about it, I mean, dystopia has become a marketing category by now anyway. Everything is a dystopia, but it's and it's virtually a separate genre from science fiction. But it's hard to imagine a future that isn't sort of dystopian in one sense or another. It is very true. Um, and, and I think part of why I shy away from saying it is because the worlds that I tend to write, I tend to write people who are – Look, who are looking at living in it, and when you live in it, like we're living, look at how we are right now. Mm-hmm. You live in a dystopia, and you still get up, and you still, you know, laugh, and you still have a good dinner, and you still play music, and you still go to cons, and you, you know, all these things. You do those. Um, if if you have the means, there are certainly people who are living in worse dystopias. Um, yeah right now and have been for some time who, who, and, and I think if you uh, focus your gaze on them, you'll still find people are laughing even in their really lousy circumstances. They're still laughing and, you know, playing with their kids and playing with their dogs and, and whatever else. So, so I tend to focus on those people. And so I don't always see it as a dystopia because it's the, you know, it's, a family trying to get through it or a person trying to get through it. And they're going to find the ways that, that let them live. I think one of the things, and this is at the risk of maybe over-interpreting your novel, um, is that there is, the, there, there, there's the external dystopia. There's the fact that there are mass bombings that kill people in baseball stadiums and people are afraid to go out in public gatherings anymore. There, and there, there are viruses that you can catch. So people are terrified about even leaving home. But on the other hand, there's a dystopia which is deliberately commercially created by Stage Hole and, and by, by Super Wally, which is a dystopia that is not that different from Netflix or iTunes or Spotify or Snapchat and so forth and so on. In other words, the idea that we're all living more and more in our little bubbles. And you don't need terrorist attacks for that to happen. One of the things that occurred to me, and it was only by coincidence of when I was reading the novel, was was Netflix and Roma the big debate of whether whether Roma should be nominated for an Oscar? Mm-hmm. Because the real core of that debate is: should you give an Oscar to something that people can do without leaving home? In other words, the whole technology behind that kind of movie making is a technology that goes all the way back to Ian Forster's A Machine Stops. Everybody in their own little cubicle watching something on video and never talking to each other. You don't need terrorism and nuclear war and pollution and viruses for that to happen because it's happening to us technologically already. 
That's my sermon. <laughs> There's nothing for her to say. But I mean, Super Wally <laughs> is as much a villain. You know what? Super Wally. Okay. okay, okay. See, see, sorry. Well, this is the point where this we just sit there and go, that's about our hour. He's beginning to <laughs> ramble off down. <sighs> Thank you so much for making the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. The book is marvelous. <laughs> the pleasure. collection I, is I wonderful. I enjoyed the sermon. Sorry? And, I mean, cool. again, we, we will add order links and pre, you know, pre-order links to this to people who are listening. But the collection is available, basically. It's, it will be in some stores already. And you know, sure the novel is. will be out in <laughs> September. So, Okay, well, until we talk again, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. All right, great. And until next week, then, or next episode, or whenever next episode is, this has been the Coods Treat Podcast.